0: My brother told me once, this is like in my late thirties, before I started teaching my parents, you know what? Mom and Dad are so embarrassed of you. One year you're doing accounting, the next year you're you're selling software and next now you got a, a used car business, like like they, they can't put a label on you and they can't tell their friends, like geez, I mean I own my own home, I've got an MBA. I mean I think I'm doing okay, but to them they still thought I was a loser.
1: Dang, we're going deep again, fam. If you're going to keep listening, I'd say find a comfortable spot for the next half hour because this is a good one. Before we dive into the conversation, let me just tell you, this experience is becoming almost spiritual at times. Not in the sense that it's bringing me closer to my maker, but rather closer to destiny, you know, that purpose in life that I've been relentlessly searching for ever since I can remember. As a naive and confused four-year-old kid, a refugee, and very much a descendant of two savage decades of war and conflict, I simply just existed for the longest time. I never knew what I was meant for in this world because I never knew that it was ultimately up to me to find out. And I never knew that because I'd always been told what I should do, who I should become, and even what I should or shouldn't dream about. The crazy thing is that after 40 some odd years on this journey, I'm at a point where I'm finally starting to figure it all out. And lo and behold, I found myself sitting down the other day with a friend who I'd met way back in grade school, and I'm listening to him talk, and I realize that holy shit, it's not just me. It's been this way for him as well. And you know what? It's taken him just as long.
0: Even though I'm up here pontificating to you about business, my road to where I'm at was not easy. But it can be done. And I'm, hopefully I'm proof of that. Especially for me, those who don't speak English. It's not easy going to ESL. And I was in ESL till I was 10 years old. But it can be done. You know, I hope that I can be some type of example to show them that it can be
1: done. Damn right you're an example. That's Phil Tran speaking. And in terms of friendships, I don't recall knowing someone for as long as I've known Phil. He's a business professor at the College of San Mateo here in Northern California. And in case you're not familiar, ESL was an acronym for English as a Second Language, It was where we were shipped for a few hours each day during elementary school because apparently we didn't understand enough english at least not enough to be with our classmates throughout the entire day as phil attests to it was embarrassing and shameful each and every time to have to get up in front of the entire class and to go elsewhere because you weren't good enough truth be told there's a lot of residual trauma in all of that for people like Phil and I. You add that to the type of household he came up in, and the difficulties he had as a student, and you really start asking yourself, how this guy ever became a college professor? Um, my parents,
0: my mom specifically, I felt like she kind of projected her insecurities onto me and. Hey, you're going to be a doctor. I'm like, geez, you don't even know what I like, what I don't like, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at. I mean, I guess, you know, as a mother, but educationally, you don't know, you don't know that I'm horrible at math. Like, I'm not good at math. I love accounting. I like accounting, but that's not math. That's arithmetic. But math, I can't do math. Like, I took calculus four times just to get a C. I just wasn't good. I'm not good at math. So I wasn't very good in school. And in fact, I did really poorly in undergrad. So bad that I barely graduated. I was average intelligence and I was not motivated. So I didn't do well. And I didn't care because I'm like, I don't like school. Three years at community college, went to every summer school because I had to make up for classes that I was dropping. And then two more years at Santa Barbara, five years of school every single summer, I was done. I'm like, I'm never getting a graduate degree. I'm I'm done, this is my last final exam. In 1999, when I graduated, like, this is my last exam. I'm never taking another exam again.
1: No offense, bro, but I just don't get it. I mean, you might end up teaching one of my kids one day. And between you and me, I'm not exactly sure you're the kind of professor I've got in mind. (laughs) But for real, though, and in all seriousness, You're one of the most motivated and inspiring educators I know in this world, which has me super curious as to how you turned it all around. I mean, you must have earned a graduate degree at some point to even become a professor, right? Not to mention, I don't know many C students who are even given the chance to attend grad school of any type.
0: So I tell people my first business class, which was an econ class, was when I was 25 years old. And so what I also teach in my class about start with why and Simon Sinek, I didn't have a why in undergrad. I didn't want to be a doctor. My mom wanted me to be an optometrist. She decided not me. She decided that I don't want to be looking at people's eyes all day. That's not the life I want. And so my why wasn't there. So if your why isn't there, then you come across as lazy, dumb, slacker, all the negative traits you can think of. But when you have a strong why, because I, I was fully committed, I knew what I wanted, which was to get into school, and I know what I needed to get there. So I, I changed because of my why. And so I I I offer that lesson in my in my uh, entrepreneurship class. When people say, I want to start a business, like, well, what is your why? Because you don't have a strong why, this, how far is this business going to go? If you don't have a strong why, how, how far is this education going to go? And so I started with, I wanted to get this graduate degree, and then I worked my way backwards. And in order for me to get this graduate degree, I need to get these grades in these classes.
1: So I don't know if you're aware, but I've got a place in my heart for Simon Sinek, and in particular, that book of his, Start With Why. It honestly is the book for me as well, and I've gifted it to a whole bunch of people over the years. And of the millions of books out there in the world, it's pretty cool that that's the one book that led you to such significant changes in life. It's almost as if we'd scripted this and that I'd asked you to place such a huge significance into starting with why. And being that that obviously wasn't the case, it just warms my heart a little bit more, you know, knowing how similar our paths have been this entire time. Speaking of the past, it's always cool to think about how your family had moved on during elementary school and how we actually ended up going to all four years of high school together after my parents had decided to move to the same town and that today, we're still only about half an hour away from one another. You know, I'm not exactly sure when this all went down, and I really don't know much about all that time leading up to your grad school experience and that MBA you got from Santa Clara. It could be wrong, but feels as if a lot of it happened while I was gone with the Air Force.
0: So a lot of people ask me, well, geez, well, if, you, if your GPA was so bad, how the heck did you get to, into Santa Clara? And I said, well, I wasn't going to go to Santa Clara. I originally was gonna go to San Jose State because I thought I was gonna have to pay out of pocket. And San Jose State said, we got accreditations we need to follow. (laughs) Literally, that's what they said. We have accreditations we need to follow. We just can't take someone with this type of a GPA. Well, um, you could go back to school and take community college classes. And I says, okay, I I really wanna do this. How many classes do I have to get? And she goes, well, keep in mind all the classes you take, They all have to be A's because you need to really pull the GPA up. Give me your transcript, let me do the calculations. She calls me back. The bad news is that it's going to take 10 A's, not a single B. You need 10 A's to qualify for the minimum GPA. 10 A's. And she goes, You should maybe think about like these, you know, second tier MBA schools. I'm like, Well, that's not an answer I wanted.
1: So instead of giving up, and settling for what he quote unquote deserved, this is what he did. While maintaining his day job, which was an hour and a half away, he would drive back to De Anza Community College and attend night classes twice a week for over two years.
0: And I got 10 A's and one B. I had one B in a class. It was 88%. So I'm like, oh my God. So I had to take an 11th class because I got that one B. So I, it took me over two years to get 10 A's and one B in there. So 11 classes. And then when I finally finished, I, she says, OK, just submit your application. We've been in touch. You're, you're pretty much in.
1: But then if you're tracking along, Professor Phil here actually got his graduate degree from Santa Clara University, not San Jose State, where he'd been coordinating with that counselor for the longest time, which begs the question, what happened with all that effort and those two grueling years of night school
0: Lockheed martin called and said that we've given you we're offering you a job i never showed up for my saturday state class i went straight to the santa clara campus and said hey i want to go here and so I told them my story. I told him my brother goes here, went here. I told him he got his undergrad and his graduate here. She heard my story. And I said, hey, look, I have, my, I have my report card to prove it. I freaking suffered for the last two plus years.
1: And so, yeah, he ended up at Santa Clara University after all, just like his brother. And now they both have grad degrees from the same school. It's a pretty sweet story if you think about it. It's somewhat of an underdog story as well and I tell you those are the kind of stories that really touch the heart and embolden the soul if you ask me but that's not where the story ends my friends in the second half of our conversation Phil and I talk about how he's always working to better understand himself what it means to be an educator in today's world and of course how he thinks we can make tomorrow a better version of today.
0: I was on a spiritual journey about eight years ago. If people don't know, I did Vipassanas, which is like 10-day silent meditation retreats where you eat vegetarian food, you don't talk, you don't speak, no electronics, no reading, nothing. It's just 10 10 days, 10 hours of meditation. I would try all sorts of things to open up my mind because I was on this journey of like, there's got to be more. There's gotta be more. It's like Neo in the Matrix. This is cool, this is comfortable, but there's gotta be more. You know, it's funny, because you know in, in, in MBA school you read case studies and you, so you try to understand these businesses really intimately, but you don't even know yourself. <laughs> and that part cracks me up. Like, what, why am I analyzing this P&L so, so intently on this business, but I don't even know why I just yelled at my girlfriend yesterday for no reason. Like, why did I do that? I guess everyone's different, but for me, I I read a bunch of books. I have life coaches. I've gone through therapy sessions as well, too, of just trying to understand why I do what I do, what is my motivation. And uh, interestingly, a lot of that just all points to your childhood, I feel like. That's what I've been told and what I've read. And so I rethink a lot about my childhood. I think that's probably one of the reasons why I don't have children. If I didn't have a good childhood, I don't know why, you know, it it makes me wonder if I want to have kids because my childhood wasn't so great. And so I think about my childhood a lot. Um, And it's a lot of this introspective talk. A lot of it's alone, alone time.
1: You know, one of the greatest privileges of producing a podcast like this is the opportunity to relive each conversation as you're putting it together in post-production. And I tell you, Phil, it's not often that I think this deeply about my own childhood and all the trauma we had as immigrants at such a foundational time in our lives. I owe you big for bringing this all up, you know, and for having the courage to share with everyone listening. If I'm being honest, I think there's a lot of effort on my part to actually repress those memories And I'll also admit that, whether it be conscious or not, I've tried pretty hard to shy away from the fact that I was an immigrant, that I am an immigrant.
0: When you live in a home with immigrant parents who work their butts off, my dad worked two full-time jobs, plus, till he was in his late 50s. And to say they're... Mom, dad, thanks for everything you provided, but you know what? I know this would make you happy, but you know what? I'm going to do something else. You know what? That's going to be hard. That's gonna, really hard. It, it'll break their heart, and it's really hard to do that. So I can't tell you what other people do, but I can tell you at least my strategy, because I think every home is different. If you have a supportive family, that's another story. I don't think they observe their parents suffer. And when you observe people suffer, you're not gonna just let that go. You're not gonna like, oh, sorry, I gotta I, I gotta be me. You watch them suffer, and you watch them wake up at five in the morning, and you don't see them till like nine o'clock at night, and you're like five, six years old, and you're being babysat by your neighbor, <laughs> you know? And the payment was my parents would just give them KFC chicken from time to time in an apartment. Just because, thanks for watching my kid. I don't know what you're doing with him, but thanks for watching him. And I could have gone really bad, right? You're letting some strangers watch your kids, but that's what it takes to survive. But they, when you watch them suffer, it's it's hard for you to disregard that in your decision making. But if you grow up in an environment where your parents are comfortable and you're comfortable, then I don't that guilt wouldn't be there as strong. I don't think.
1: Man, that makes a lot of sense. And guilt really does feel like a good word to encapsulate those feelings. Unfortunately, as we both agreed, there's just a whole lot of trauma and guilt and shame that never goes away, no matter how hard you try. And the only real option is to somehow work through it, right, just like you did through your journey of self-discovery and awareness. And I respect you for that, Phil because it's been a tough road. And so now that you're here, now that you've reached this point in your life, I can't help but wonder about how it all feels. I know full well that neither of us see this moment or any moment for that matter as the ultimate achievement, but there is a lot to be said about simply being in a moment. So when you think about being an educator and a professor at CSM, How does that now resonate deep inside?
0: My duty is for them to be happy. That's ultimately my goal, is for them to be happy. And I know that's different than what some people may think. Some people may think your goal is to educate them, your goal is to provide them with knowledge, work experience, useful skills they can apply in the workplace. I think that's all that's true, but then why are you learning excel why are you why am i making you learn sql right now why are you learning about economic cycles why are you learning these things and if that why isn't there it's like talking to a to a blank canvas and just making sure you get the answers right on the test and so learning is lost so i start with The why, like, why am I teaching you this? Why is this important? And most of it is because it's going to help you in your career, which is going to benefit you financially. And not to say that money solves all problems, but I tell students in my classroom, having a lot of money does not solve all your problems, but having a lot of money solves all of your money problems. And so you think about all the problems you have, whether it's not spending enough time for students who are parents, if not spending enough time with their kids, not having the resources to to, uh, provide for the parents, all of that stems from how much could money solve here? Would you still have to go to work if if you had enough money? Could you hang out with your kids all day if you wanted to? It's not about buying bling. It's about buying time and lifestyle and spending your time the way you want. All of that requires, unfortunately, in our society, money. And so that's why I say that my goal, my responsibility is to make them happy. But with that said, what career will make you happy? Maybe nonprofit, maybe starting your own business, maybe providing a business where you can provide jobs for people in your community. Will that make you happy? So I feel that that's my responsibility is to try to find what makes people happy. But most of my knowledge is based not in psychology, but based in the business world. And um, I hope that some of their happiness is found through being financially comfortable. I feel that a lot of what you teach in the textbook is not rocket science. They're not learning engineering here. They're not learning super technical skills. Some of the concepts are pretty basic, supply-demand, basic concepts to understand. So I don't feel that the value add is regurgitating what's in the textbook or what's on the PowerPoint. I feel the value add is in the personal anecdotes, the mistakes, the victories in the business world. Because students ask me that too. Like, oh, why are you teaching? Why You say you start businesses and you have businesses. Like, why are you, work, why are you working here then? And I tell them because I want to be here. <laughs> I need to be here. I feel like I need this job. Um, and it's not just the financial benefits, but I think it's also for my soul. Without this job, I become directionless. And I think... When you don't have a goal and you don't have direction, that can be very dangerous. For me, having this job gives me the goal of, of doing something meaningful and helpful. So without this job, I don't know where I would get that. I don't know where I could nurture my soul doing something else other than maybe doing some type of nonprofit work or something along those lines. Being in the classroom fulfills my soul. That's why I prefer to teach in person. I need to feel that impact that I'm making. When I teach online, you don't have that personal touch. I feel like it becomes like a job. And I know it's a job, but what I love so much about teaching is that it's more than a job. It's changing lives. You're literally changing lives. So I don't see myself going anywhere else. I don't see myself doing anything else. Dude, I'm gonna be working, I'm gonna be one of those professors gonna be working until they're 70 and not, you gotta like push me out. You know, you have to like shove me out because I don't wanna leave, I wanna be here um, because
1: I need it. I tell you what, the impact this profession and more so this purpose has made on you as an individual is profound. Not to mention the impact it'll continue to have on your students throughout the rest of their lives. I know we're both getting a bit emotional talking through all this, but you know how it goes toward the end of each episode. I was hoping you'd take us home and share with all of us your thoughts on how we can make tomorrow a better version of today.
0: So incremental gains, I think, comes through confidence. And if you don't have confidence, life becomes very hard. But how do you gain confidence? I gain confidence through just incremental wins. For example, like, When I don't feel like I'm in shape, I don't go to the gym and sit there for two hours. I tell myself, today, I'm going to do five push-ups, and that's it. Five push-ups too too much? Do two. You can't do two push-ups in one day. All right, you made a promise to yourself. You fulfilled it. Tomorrow, I'm going to do three. Next day, I'll do four. To me, you start building confidence. If not, you're just going to find yourself stuck. What's the saying? Uh, A journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. You just got to move.
1: It's really hitting home now how so many of us kids who grew up in the 80s as Vietnamese refugees must have gone through such similar journeys. Sounds obvious, but for whatever reason, for the longest time, it felt like it was just me, that I was all alone with my own struggles, trying to work it all out. I've been called a loser as well, you know, by my own father, my uncles and a whole bunch of others who saw that I wasn't walking the average path and believed in their heart that I was lost and hopeless. But that was never the case, you know, and not all those who wander are lost. So this episode is a big F you to all those naysayers out there who don't have the courage to live with selfless generosity and hope. If you're gonna be somebody in this world then be someone who strives for more each day, Someone who believes in the power of possibility and the purpose of a dream. Be someone like Professor Phil Tran. You'll find him in the classroom at the College of San Mateo. Apparently until the day he dies. Or until he gets dragged out screaming and yelling.
0: I tell people all the time, like, man, this is the honeymoon phase. But man, this honeymoon phase has been lasting a long time. (laughs) It's been four years, but, man, it's been lasting a long time.
1: Hey, fam. We're doing some rebranding here. This episode was narrated by me, Locke Nguyen, and produced by Bayhouse Creative. We hope you're still enjoying this first season and that you're looking forward to more. Connect with us as Bayhouse Creative on LinkedIn or, better yet, Instagram. We're also at b-a-y-h-a-u-s-creative.com.